Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every week with a new story about your world. Today's guest is Lisbeth Melendez Rivera, a queer Latina activist who has been in the social justice arena for many years. But today's fight is more personal to Lisbeth, as she discusses her recent work in rebuilding Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Learn how she and a group of LGBT volunteers went down to the island and took matters into their own hands while the federal government was mangled in bureaucracy. I want to thank all of you following Jesse Garcia's show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about the show, visit jessegarciashow.com. Get ready for the 47th Annual Latino Festival in the District of Columbia, also known as Fiesta DC. This year's parade will be held on Saturday, September 15th, and the festival takes place Sunday, September 16th. Each year, the Parade of Nations makes its way down Constitution Avenue, featuring cultural dance troops and music from all over Latin America. The festival includes a science fair, a diplomatic pavilion for embassies and consulates, an arts and crafts section, and a section for international cuisine. Hope to see you there. You know how I love a parade, and I'll probably be there with a baton. For more information about this parade and festival, visit FiestaDC.org. That's FiestaDC.org. And here's your weekly news update. CBS News Latino reporter Ed O'Keefe reported earlier this week that a mobilization of Puerto Rican voters residing in the mainland of the United States will be launched by the Latino Victory Project. This new outreach plans to dedicate $1.5 million to locate, register, and turn out displaced Puerto Ricans living in Florida, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. These swing states will have important congressional and gubernatorial races, and Florida is on the verge of becoming the mainland state with the largest group of Puerto Rican transplants. In recent years, large amounts of Puerto Ricans have been choosing Georgia, Pennsylvania, Texas, and North Carolina as their new home, according to recent census figures. Currently, Puerto Rican voters are an important voting bloc in New York and New Jersey, two states that have been the preferred mainland destination for much of the past century, according to CBS. This new mobilization plan by the Latino Victory Project will not only register and turn up Puerto Rican voters, but will train Puerto Ricans to run for office so their people can have a seat at the table in their new communities. For years, Lisbeth Melendez Rivera has been building bridges between communities, but this past year, she's been busy building actual houses. This social justice advocate, who works as the director of Latino and Catholic initiatives at the Human Rights Campaign, has been part of an immediate grassroots response team to Hurricane Maria called Waves Ahead. The group is based in Puerto Rico, which has brought in money and supplies, but most importantly, volunteers to help rebuild homes of some of the most marginalized communities in Puerto Rico, which include the LGBT community. Nearly a year has passed and conditions in Puerto Rico are still not back to normal and emotions are still raw. This month, the government of Puerto Rico finally admitted that Hurricane Maria was responsible for 1,427 deaths, more than 20 times the official death count it was standing by. After the Category 4 hurricane hit the island, more than 160,000 homes were damaged or destroyed. The electrical grid was flattened and the island's water systems were compromised. While the island waits for the U.S. Congress to respond to its $139 billion bailout submitted this past month, ordinary citizens are doing all they can to help fellow Americans in Puerto Rico, whose stories have fallen from the headlines. This is where Lisbeth and her building skills come in. For the past year, this amazing soul has been traveling down to Puerto Rico with cash in one hand and a hammer in the other. I want to welcome to the show Lisbeth Melendez Rivera, a longtime friend of mine who I admire 
She's been a social justice advocate in the movement for quite some time. And it is just really an honor to have her on the show today. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking about Puerto Rico in the aftermath and how this one woman, who I appreciate a lot, took matters into her own hands and started a rebuilding effort along with friends going to the island on a regular basis. But before we get to that, tell us, how was it growing up in Puerto Rico? Growing up in Puerto Rico was glorious. You know, when you, you spend time in a tropical country, uh, you get to go to the beach a lot. I had an incredibly loving family. Um, we had turmoil. It's not like it was easy. You know, we sit as a territory of the United States uh, that gives us some freedoms and some limitations. So I was able to travel all over the country, the United States, uh, other countries, On uh, you know. Um, but I also had a lot of work to do. My family has been invested in service and in social justice uh, for generations, right? My parents, uh, my grandparents and my great-grandparents were founders of the Rotary Movement in Puerto Rico. Wow. Um, we so it's in your blood to give back. I'm a, gen a genetically t tendencies <laughs> for troublemaking, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, you know, went to school, stay there, and... Little, I mean, left because um, if there was areas in which I felt that would be safer exploring them uh, stateside with my sexuality, um, I did not want to become the doctor, the lawyer, the corporate person. And in Puerto Rico, one of the things that is really hard is that there is not a single paid activist position, particularly as it refers to LGBTQ. Uh, so we're now beginning to have what looks like, you know, some nonprofits that are able to sustain their employees, not as volunteers, uh, with with a principal job and then coming to the office at night to do the work, but to actually, but at the time when I was in Puerto Rico back in the 1970s and 80s, uh, that was not the case. There was not a single position that was paid in, in to explore one's sexuality in the island, took the kind of courage that at the time I did not realize I had. Yeah. So your immediate family is still in Puerto Rico? Yes. Uh, my parents, my sibling, uh, his children, uh, my ex you know, my extended family in Latino terms, my immediate family, right? Or my tios or my tias, mis primos. I have a couple of uh, cousins who are in Florida now uh, who left post uh, immediately uh, before Maria and post Maria. Uh, but otherwise, uh, it's about the three or four of us here, and the rest of us, we have to go home to see them. Now, how did your family ride out the storm, and how was, how were they affected? Uh, painful times, painful times. Um, so I, I, I will start by saying that I traveled to Puerto Rico at the beginning of September, right before Irma, which was the precursor to Maria. Uh, that affected uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands more than it did Puerto Rico, but that it hit Puerto Rico and took out 60% of the electrical grid. And I, um, so I rode Irma with my parents in the house, my entire family, my brother, my nieces, you know, we all huddled up, put the, you know, the tormenteras up, the you know, storm windows. And I, I grew up along the Gulf of Mexico in South Texas. So riding out the storm is basically a family reunion where you get all your extended family in the strongest house that you own in the family and you ride out the storm with all this food, music, until the lights go out. Same over there in Puerto Rico? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's the... The hurricane culture, I think, is the Latino culture. <laughs> you know, we look, because we look. all the nice white families go to the, the shelters, the, the high schools, the hospitals. The Latinos end up in the strongest house that the tia has, the one that made, made out of brick, and you ride it out there. And that's exactly what happened in my family. We had the highest house. Uh, my brother lives uh, by the ocean, so he had to. he was asked to evacuate. Uh, because of the surge and you know his house sustained about five feet of of, of you know storm surge water uh, so we were all in my parents house my dad had um was scheduled to have a uh, surgery and so there, there we were you know my dad is injured we all have all the food and all the people and all the family and i thought Irma was scary 
My father, you know, my father had surgery during that period of time. It was incredibly difficult for my mother and I, you know, not only having to clean up everything after the, after the hurricane, after Irma, but then to all of a sudden have to prepare for Maria because Maria was unexpected. Nobody thought that she would that she would remain in that path. Not the government, not the federal government, not the people. They were already dealing with the after effect with Irma. They didn't think they were going to get hit again. As a matter of fact, the, uh, FEMA and other federal agencies transported all the remaining supplies from Puerto Rico to the U.S. Virgin Islands that were so hard hit by Irma. So when Maria made impact, everything that we needed, the blue tarps, the water, the generators, all of that was no longer in Puerto Rico, was now in St. Thomas, St. John, St. Grace, and we've donated things to the British Virgin Islands, which were also so badly affected by Irma. I left Puerto Rico in the last flight prior to Maria's arrival. It is the scariest takeoff I have ever done in my life. I felt like I was basically a napkin in the wind. The pilot had uh, warned us that it would be very rough and it took about 20,000 feet for the plane to stabilize in terms of like it did not feel like, again, you know, Nachola en el Rio. No, it was like, you know, like a very small boat in very rough waters. Yes. Um, I did not hear from my parents for two days. Once I spoke to them, they had evacuated their house, uh-huh. gone to a house on a higher ground than theirs in the same neighborhood. Um, they uh, There was a small creek, really a little, I think creek is still calling it a big thing, that sits about what would be the equivalent of five floors below my parents' uh, house. And that creek took out our deck, our fences, all of our fruit trees, the the lanay, um, not just ours, but the entire row of houses in which my parents' house sits. Right? Uh, it took the earth. It t- it it, uh, it you know my town my hometown received the most amount of water of the hurricane we sit in a valley so it was not only the torrential rain but everything else that came through so we got 63 inches of water and what town is this Uh, my parents live in Cagos Puerto Rico okay and uh, and yet they were lucky right their house still had a roof and we no longer had the water tank or you know those things left you know Maria se los llevo just took them yeah. uh, but in comparison to others I have to say that I feel very grateful I also feel very grateful for the neighborhood in which my parents live right there was damages to every single house in one shape form or another some roofs they, you know they had the cement you know hard brick house um, so some windows were missing um, and some houses were worse than others but the spirit of community that my parents encounter at that moment, the you know, they knew. They knew. Sixty percent had gone with their mind. They knew without even having to listen to the radio because there was no communications. Yes. Nothing. My mother would hear from me on the phone more than she knew from the island from the people on the island. Um, as an aside, you know, one of the jokes that I've said to, to my parents, while I was there getting ready to leave and I did not want to leave, my mother was like, Somebody has to be out of the island to survive. Yeah. And literally, yeah. that was their attitude. Um, I knew my father, the pack rat, had somewhere, somewhere there had to be an old phone, an old landline that was not a wireless phone. Because one of the things that, you know, that people don't realize today is that they was like, oh, I have a phone and you have a wireless phone. There's no electricity. Your phone doesn't work. You need an actual landline with one of those, you know, cords that you could stretch to the kitchen and back, like, you know, back in the 1970s. So I put it in the early 80s, the, old, <laughs> the, the early touch tones. And good enough, my father had a phone st- stashed somewhere in his closet. So I took it out and everybody was like, you know, like, oh, my God, look at our whole thing. It's up your head. Up, <laughs> uh, you know? And I said, you all laugh. You all laugh. But I don't see any of you with one of these. And plug the phone in and make sure that it worked. When the hurricane happened, my parents were the only lifeline my neighborhood had outside of their hood. Wow. 
because light because electric you know the the phone lines are buried so it's harder for them to be broken so everything that was above air was gone yes but the landlines were working my parents landline was working so there was a line outside my parents house to use that old phone to call people here in the states to let them know they were okay and, and so that you know uh so that was part of like so my parents provided the phone um there there was a couple of really big um electric plants and you know generators um and so there was like three of them in my parents street and so you you looked at my mother sent me a picture at one point and you looked at the street and there was cords everywhere because it was the cords that people were plugging in the, the refrigerator so they could still have food. And, and as, as the gas started to go, mm-hmm. um, the communal eating, right? Every night, one house would put up their gas grill and they would cook all the food that would spoil, that, would, that if it didn't get cooked, it would spoil. And so the entire neighborhood would eat house by house by house. And so they just took turns. And so what I would say is that the experience of my parents surviving the hurricane was one of finding the resilience they always knew was in the island to do something with nothing. What a beautiful story. Tell me about what made you, tell me about the work uh, that your group does and how you decided to direct your energy to rebuild homes in Puerto Rico. We knew the moment the hurricane happened that we were going to do something. Right, and with we, I mean a group of of Boricuas from the diaspora. Like, what, what do you do? Right, um, we didn't want to go just for oh, we're going to show up, and you know, it, it, there had to be something that was necessary, and that was not being covered by others. Right, I didn't. We didn't want to duplicate the work. Mm-hmm. Um, we felt that with having survived this type of disaster, not just in Puerto Rico, but in Houston and in New Orleans and in Florida, that the initial drive to give money can at times be misguided. Uh, One of the things that we began to notice after the second or third months after Maria was that the bureaucracy today, still today, there are donations that were given to the people of Puerto Rico that are sitting in Miami water and clothing and food and you know non-perishables uh, because the bureaucracy of the Jones Act of 17 and what it had meant to get that th- you know those things there and you know a variety of complications we knew we needed to wait just long enough to figure out and, and that is not to say that we didn't send stuff, right? Like, we immediately made connections with friends. We started sending solar batteries. We started sending uh, filter uh, filter pills, you know, the water. The, the, For the water. The water. Um, there was a lot of things that we did. There was also no no way to get things there, right? So, we like, first you had to figure out how to get them there. Then you had to get the stuff. And then, you, you know... Um, and so you know generators and all that kind of all that kind of stuff and so by january uh four or five months after the hurricane we began to hear from an organization uh founded by a friend of mine called waves ahead which had just incorporated um, they had been doing work, micro-enterprise work, helping LGBTQ people create their own enterprises so they didn't have to survive in the system uh, that really were not supporting them at all. Uh-huh. That these folks didn't have housing, they, their houses were not being covered, um, they were still eating communally, they were still, they were, there was a lot of shortcomings in particular, from even from their own families, right? And part of, part of what we identify with in many cases that, uh, like many communities of color, the person with the money buys the parcel, and then the parcel becomes el rancho, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have like 20 little houses in this in this like acre of land, um, and the whole family lives there, right? Um, and among those families, they had given this little house a little space to the queer person in the family, so I don't bother anybody. They're <laughs> already there, right? Uh, they didn't talk to them. They don't, you know. But it's a, and so we began identifying 
families and individuals who were either had been supported by our micro enterprise projects or had or, or were just adjacent to those folks and were in desperate need of housing, of food, uh, of medical care. And at a meeting in January here in Washington, D.C., uh, the, the executive director of Waves Ahead and I met and uh, you know, I had brought him to the to DC to present on the on the pre work that we had done, the sending of the generators, the sending all that stuff. And I said, you know, what else can we do? We, there is a queer Puerto diaspora in the United mm-hmm. States. We are ranging our heads, going, what can we do? And he says, I, you know, it's like there's so much. I said, would it be helpful if a bunch of us show up? You identify houses, locations, we'll, we'll come in with our hammers, with our, you know, with our money, we'll, we'll tap what we can, um, we'll make it happen. Have you ever built anything before this? Well, in my particular case, yes. I actually happen to be a good a woodworker, and I do wood restoration and, and furniture building. Oh my God, social justice advocate plus knows her way around the workshop. How perfect is this? What a per- I, perfect, you know, combination to have. I um, I need a place to relax. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, social work is really hard work, uh, harder than woodworking. And um, but but the point is that there was a bunch of us at, the, at this at this conference, you know, mm-hmm. was creating change here in DC. The um, and I said, look, why don't we have a dinner? Let's throw the idea out. So five of us met, and we said, um, some of us were already involved with the organization, some of us were not. Said, so you know what? We're gonna write a letter. We're gonna start asking our organizations to support this effort. Let's aim to get 30 people there. We're gonna spend at least two weeks. Um, we'll figure it out. And about a month later, we started meeting every week. We, uh, we we reached out to all of the national queer organizations, to ally organizations. We asked them to either donate um, monies, supplies. Um, gift cards. Gift card time. The most important thing what we wanted to do was to make sure that people did not get penalized for going, right? That, that our organizations have a social justice uh, mission and that they should you know that people who want to volunteer could volunteer to do to do that and still get a paycheck correct yeah um, and if if they could help it if and not and not get penalized either they didn't have to take vacation mm. or sick time to do it even better right mm. but but that they would be the they will be the minimum there would be permission for them to be able to spend the time doing this and so out of that we ended up with seven organizations really at the core of the effort we had um, on and off between the end of April and the second week of June, probably about sixty volunteers. That um, so you wanted thirty and you got sixty. We did. We even got we even got folks from the Borico diaspora in Europe. Fifteen wow. folks came. They met in London at the beginning of June. Traveled to Puerto Rico and spent two weeks in Puerto Rico doing reconstruction work. But for me and the team that I took down, there were 35 of us. Um, we worked uh, in about 20 houses. We fully and completely rebuilt 10, right? Some houses only needed some cosmetic work, paint, mold removal. None of it pretty, by the way. You know, yes, I do woodworking, but I've never installed a window in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, one of the things that I learned in this trip was that there is a reason why I will, I mean, besides my own sense of justice, that I look at tradespeople with awe and, and, and knowing they deserve the money they earn because it is hard work. Um, I'll give you three stories of the, of the many that we collected that I think would illustrate the best that we can. Um, one many of you have may probably seen in the Washington Blade, and it's Ricky. Ricky is a 53-year-old hairdresser who lives in the town of Umacao, which is, by the way, where the hurricane made landfall. We actually did two houses in Umacao, um, three total. 
no, three, I'm sorry, three houses in, in, in Macau, two which I will tell you a little bit about. But so Ricky's house, house he was a, he, he is a hairdresser and he was a one of our uh, recipients of a mini grant for micro enterprise so that he could open his own beauty salon in the mountains of Macau. Um, and so he did. He had. He had his, his. His. You know. He had established his beauty salon. What part of the island is that in? That is the southeast corner of the island. And the the hurricane actually came made landfall in the town of Jabucoa in between Jabucoa and Macau. Jabucoa, by the way, is still without without electricity, without many of the amenities that they need. Um, it's been reported that a thousand families households are still without electricity. And we're 10 months after. 11, 11 months. 11 months. Uh, you know, um, and uh, those most of those are in the town of Jabucoa and in the mm. island of Vieques. Vieques is still being run by, by generators. There is no actual electricity. Um, so Ricky uh, rode out the, the hurricane with his uh, bedridden father, his mother, his aunt, you know, his house was an addition to his mother's house on the roof, right? So the second floor addition to the mm -hmm. house. And that's where him and his father would live. They, that's where they lived. In the middle of the hurricane, the hurricane, the, the winds are coming, it's, the roof is gone. They have to carry his father and the medical bed down the stairs into the mother's house. Um, and Ricky ended up hiding inside a bathtub trying to get himself on this down the stairs um one of the results being the results that his that his little apartment was gone so was his beauty salon and because he was not he is not the um the uh what do you call it uh, the title holder in that property is his father who's bedridden mm -hmm. um fema gave him three thousand dollars the entire family, $3,000. Because the construction of you know second floor was not up to code, blah, blah, blah. And the damage inside the house, they didn't deem to be that. And so um, you can look at our Facebook page, uh, Waves Ahead, and you can take a look at some of the reconstruction that we did in Ricky's house. We started from scratch. We had to install the windows, redo the wiring, redo the plumbing, install the roof, paint the walls. We did an HGTV makeover. When we left, <laughs> when we left, he had, for the first time in a long time, a bed of his own. He had his own apartment. We had remodeled the room where his father had been staying, installed an AC, and then took part of the back of the house and redid it so that he would he would be able to open his beauty salon again. Because when he was fully operational, he would make about $1,000 a month because he is the hairdresser to the entire neighborhood. Um, and while he was unable to do his you know to perform his job he was making maybe a hundred dollars which meant that his father wasn't getting the medicine or the you know adult diapers or you know the food that he needed um and so for being an lgbt person there's a lot that weighs on these people who are still taking care of their parents who have not married off and created new families they're still taking care of their families it's, it's beautiful that they still, that they're doing that. Uh, in Ricky's case, he no longer speaks to the rest of his family because the rest of them left. They were like, nope, we're out of here. And he was like, I will never abandon my parents, right? Um, and so, so that's one story. Um, and, you know, we helped fix the parents' house, his house. Um, we then went on to Natividad's house. Nati is a 73-year-old, no, 76-year-old gay man mm -hmm. um, who lived in a, what I would probably say is a 12 by 12 structure. Wow. A little bathroom, 
you know, mm -hmm. the, the hurricane, he lives at the top of a hill, right next to so you could actually see the mudslides and the push of the eye walking into the island from his house. So you could literally, you can you can look down the hill and mm -hmm. see exactly the path of the eye. Uh -huh. And he was living with his sister, who's also uh -huh. a lesbian. Uh, and you know they basically are isolated from the other twenty members of their house who live in in the in you know in the parcel that that they are because you know they're the weird ones right mm -hmm. um seventy six you know um again that was a house that we rebuilt from scratch and and you can again go go to the to you know our Facebook page and take a look at and see Natty holding. The first set of dishes he's ever owned in his house. These were not hand-me-downs. This was not take that with you. We went to the store and we bought him a new bed and we bought him a stove and we bought him a refrigerator. And for the first time in that space, 12 by 12, he had a new toilet, a new shower, a new... Um, we wanted things to be new. We didn't want things to be used. We wanted them to last and we... And we we worked to make sure that they were as secure as they could be so that they would survive the next storm because we know a next storm will come. Um, you're not only giving these people a new home, but you're giving them dignity. I think we're giving ourselves dignity, honestly. I think because they're, they're, their dignity is intact. What, what, what was amazing to me and, and what, it made things the, the better is that in the middle of all of this strategy, in the middle, like we looked at it, it's like, oh my God, wh what, right? And it's not like they're not affected, and it's not that there's not a lot of post-traumatic um, stress, it's not, you know, but the reality is that these folks really taught us what it was to do something with nothing. Yeah. Un poquito de nada, right? Un poquito de la nada. It was out of thin air. Out of thin air, they'll show up with an orange for you. Out of thin air, they would show with a cup of coffee. It's like, where are you getting this stuff, <laughs> right? Um, and they were, and, and that were their simple ways in which they will say thank you. And we, you know, um, the last story that I will tell you, it was not in Umacao, it's in Carolina, which is on the north side. It was, you know, it was um, an icon of the trans community in Puerto Rico um, who, um, who was um, living inside her house in a tent because there was nothing left to the house and other organizations had um, other organizations supposedly helping queer people uh, didn't quite get it done and so we went in and redid her house uh, she was the last house that we worked in my team um, my team was about eight people um, from PFLAG and Advocates for Youth and um, Centerlink, um, the Human Rights Campaign, uh, the Task Force. Um, you know, we had a rotating group of about eight people for the two weeks that we were there. Um, the last thing that we did to close our stay there was that we actually marched on the Pride Parade. Oh, that must have been wonderful. Um, and we did so with eight communities, eight open and affirming faith communities that have um, cemented their existence in the island and with whom I've been working for many years to make sure that they continue to exist, that they, you know, that people had a place to go to practice their faith. Um, and so it was, it truly, it was uh, the hardest, most satisfying thing I've done in a long, long time. Where a lot of people want to give to Puerto Rico still. What do you recommend they donate? And how can they donate to your organization? So a couple of things. You can go to wavesahead.org and look at the donate links. You can go to our Facebook page, again, Waves Ahead, and, take, you know, and, and look for our donation links. Um, if you're thinking of donating, particularly in this hurricane season, always remember that solar power works best. One thing that we have a limitless supply of in Puerto Rico is the sun. The wind 
comes and goes. Sometimes stronger, sometimes not. And we have, you know, we we're rebuilding our our wind farms and our solar farms. But you know, if there's nothing more valuable than a solar powered radio, um, solar batteries where you can plug in your cell phones. Um, water filtration, you know, portable well filtration systems, um, water purification, you know, tablets, uh, batteries, right? Um, these are the things that will forever be part of the hurricane, you know, box that you keep in your space. Um, you know, my my wife always makes fun of me because, you know, when, when we're here and even in the winter, right, and it's like, oh, my God, a storm is coming, um, I will immediately go into prep mode. And then there are things that if you've gone through, like you and I have gone through this hurricane thing, you immediately look at how many people you have, how many days you think you're going to go, how much water you're going to need. So you wash the bathtub, you fill it fill with, up with water, water. You, you put, you know, buckets outside, you tie them to the wall so they get filled with water. So you have something to flush the toilet, and then you go looking for your bat- your batteries. You go looking for whatever solar things you have. You go looking for the canned foods, mm-hmm. um, and you literally, for those of us who are Uber prepared, we keep that in the back of the closet. We just roll it out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but those are the things you know. Like think about the things that you you feel that you will need in a storm here. Yeah. Um, those are the same things that we need. Um, we don't need. You know, what are the orga- uh, the organizations to donate that we should be worried about? Like, mm, may not be a good decision to send hard-earned dollars to. You know, I, I hesitate to tell you that there is such a thing because I, I think everybody has a role to play. I think that direct aid to the ground is always best, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, for example, personally do not donate to the Red Cross. Uh, but that's because the bureaucracy is so much that where exactly does the money and how quickly does the, does the, the goods relate to people. So I have a tendency to look for grassroots organization. That They're already on the ground working. The, exactly. And that, I mean, that obviously you either know somebody who's working with them or, you know, they have a good history because not everybody that shows up all of a sudden also, you know, is a, is a you know, thing. People might want to take advantage of, of, of the situation. Um their largest of the Hispanic Federation has a great program going. They have, you know, they're they're distributing monies, and for those of you who find it easier to do that, um, we are finally looking at the Unidos Front that the First Lady of Puerto Rico put together, have begun distributing monies and everything. But it has taken ten months for them to get their bureaucracy together, right? Where scrappy organizations like Waves Ahead, Pro Salud, which is a women's organization, um, the uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, there's a couple of other in over the top of my head. I can't think of, but that kind of uh, uh, Amnesty International in Puerto Rico, uh, Davis. They're established. They have the contacts. They actually are working in the you know in the in the ground with people in neighborhoods, in places where where you did not see the government or the army or FEMA show up. Um, sometimes because we have family there and we went to see our family and realized, oh my God, this place is hell still and we need to do something about it. And if nobody else is going to do it, we're going to do it. And I'll tell you one more thing. We are scrappy. All of these organizations that are talking about, when we began this effort, our, our goals were incredible. So, you know, we're in the United States, right? So like we live stateside and, and sometimes we get spoiled. Uh, it's like, oh, well, race, that's amount of money. And we did all of that work with $35,000. That $35,000 has yielded more donations and more money that are helping now. For example, we just got a grant from the Unidos Fund to do mental health across LGBTQ communities who are suffering from PTSD and are isolated and have no idea. Not everybody in Puerto Rico who's queer lives in San Juan or Mayagüez or Ponce, right? On the big city, the big city, particularly San Juan, you know, the big cities. Um, you would be surprised at the amount of queer people who live in the who live in the rural areas of Puerto Rico um, and who are in pain and isolated. And so we do part of the, our efforts to be able to su- to support those local, you know, off the beaten part efforts. I'm supporting that someone can take care of itself. Utuabo cannot. There's a lot of us on this side, state side, that feel that they wrong Puerto Rico big time. 
It's already fallen off the headlines. Um, because we're reaching the one year anniversary, people are going to start talking about it and remembering. And this just this past week, the government of Puerto Rico finally, finally acknowledged that there were 1,400 deaths, not 64 as originally reported. Do you think that why did the hurricane recover in Houston go better than the one in Puerto Rico? Besides racism? Um, one of the most angering scenes from the post-Maria uh, effort is, is our president standing in the middle of a stage effort throwing paper towels to people. Um, it angered me because it felt like he thought it was a game. This were people's lives at stake. Um, your excuse that we're, we're an island in the middle of a big ocean. Um, that's not what you thought when you had seven bases in Puerto Rico, right? So, you know, we, every single branch of the armed forces and their reserves, each of them had bases in Puerto Rico. Um, so it wasn't that difficult to get there then. Um, and so, you know, so the, the excuses range from land access to size, to um, proximity. Um, at the end of the day, I believe that the usefulness that Puerto Rico has had as a territory, as a, tr a strategic territory in the you know in the Atlantic, might have had its moment and gone. Um, you didn't even hear about the U.S. Virgin Islands. I mean, you at least got some news from Puerto Rico. You would very rarely do we hear about the U.S. Virgin Islands. You know, we are an archipelago that that is just sits there, and, uh, um, and you know, it's just been really, really hard to to figure things out. Um, again, I don't think that people. The, the other thing, the complicated things, is one is our territorial status. The other one is. Um, I don't think anybody expected to have four Category 5 hurricanes, three of which hit the mainland um, and the islands of Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, right? Um, as I said at the beginning, when Irma happened, it was like, but there's no way another Category 5 comes and shows up. This is what happens when we ignore climate change. We are going to see more of these, and the people of my island will suffer the consequences of us not taking care of our environment and our water so that it's not so warm that we end up with soon, I think we're going to have to create a new category because when you have winds of 200 miles an hour in a hurricane, that's off the chart of the, of the you know, of that the, scale, would, that the scale that they've created. So another thing. A lot of people that want to help Puerto Rico automatically jump to the conclusion of making it a state, a U.S. state to help not only the island recover, but also with the finances that have been plaguing the island. What do you think about that? Uh, um, I, I, for the record, I will tell you that I am a pro-independence person. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that just like other islands in the Caribbean who've survived by diversifying their industry, and we have the capacity to grow and to regrow an agricultural uh, society as well as to increase the level of tourism. Right? There, there are ways and places in which we can do this, and that, and you know, um, so the, the, that would be my hope. But, you know, let me just come down to reality for a second. Uh, I don't live in the island; it is not my decision. The decision belongs to the people who live and work and love and suffer in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, and if they ever decide, um, whatever decision they come to, I would respect. I, I, you know, if I was living there, I, would, I probably would say something very different, but, I, but that is not where I reside. Yeah. And I know what my parents feel would be best for them and for, you know, you know, for the island. The problems are, if Puerto Rico were to become a state, we would have a lower GPD than Mississippi. We would be 10 times poorer than Mississippi, the poorest state in the country. Um, we, um, we don't have the infrastructure 
you know, I think that the way in which Hawaii hides some of their problems is by everything escalates in price, right? Uh, because we, we're in very similar places. Everything needs to, you know, there's so much of, of what we consume needs to be imported. Can the people of Puerto Rico afford that upscaled? As, you know, they kind of, you know, I'm not sure that they can. As a matter of fact, I know they can't. This has to be something gradual, something that is, that is you know, grown. Uh, I also think that people don't understand the process of becoming a state. We've forgotten. Um, look, in today's climate, in yesterday's climate, in the climate 10 years ago, you tell me that a majority, two-thirds of the United States, two-thirds of the states that comprise the union will vote to add another state that will be brown and that they will perceive to be democratic. Um, I will want to refresh people up in you know, the District of Columbia. We have very similar histories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are both political, and political, geographic, and social forces that stop that from happening. Uh, you cannot force it down people's throats. Um, there has to be a, a process that is called for, not by the people of Puerto Rico, but by Congress, a referendum that has to f- fit a particular set of rules. The last referendum that we had in Puerto Rico a few years ago did not follow those rules, was not authorized by Congress, and all, with the exception of the pro-statehood party, was boycotted. Right, so you hear these numbers like 90% of the people of Puerto Rico want statehood. Yeah, that was only 17% of voters. Mm-hmm. Because the rest of the island boycotted it because it had no meaning to them. They knew that the, the rules had been broken, right? And that's not to say that those you folk, those folks got a voice, um, but it was a voice outside of the process. And if you want to enter into a country that is as process oriented as this one is, you're gonna have to follow the rules. You can't force them. We, you know, we're David in a Goliath fight. <laughs> Um, and this Goliath is not going to fall by a stone. Um, and so they need to make a decision. The process needs to be followed. I I don't see how that is helpful. I also don't see how the current state is helpful, right? Well, we're, also, we're seeing the consequences now. Uh, most people are like, what do you mean, Puerto Rico? It's like, you know, like, I mean... <laughs> You know, the, the fact that we are citizens, that we were given citizenship for a very specific set of reasons, um, it is still unknown, right? We, we, I mean, never mind the fact that Puerto Rico is a citizen. We, you know, most people, most young people don't even know what the Holocaust is, right? So historically, we, we have lost um, even a set of, a set of, uh, of historical markers that would, that would inform people's decisions as to how they will vote because the way in which the votes would happen is every state would have to have a vote that then goes to the legislature that then gets to go, that then goes to Congress, right? I mean, this is not an overnight process either. Um, and to me, the question is like, when you do that, you know, before you do that, go to Puerto Rico and ask the people of Puerto Rico what they want. And not just as one or two people, our families are complex, they're complicated. I come from a family that spouses all three ideologies. And we freely discuss them, and sometimes we don't. <laughs> so, um, but talk to us. Don't decide for us. Uh, and give us the chance to make that decision eventually. Um, we are, you know, we're, we're in a difficult time, and... Um, Desperate people may take desperate measures. And so, but those desperate measures must must come from us, not from others. Um, Let us ask for formal acceptance. Let us go through that process Mm -hmm. first. And then, and then, do the work that you need to do accordingly. When's your next trip to Puerto Rico? So I will be visiting Puerto Rico in December for both a board meeting of Waves Ahead and the holidays. Um, kind of a double dessert, but but um, there are two current trips, reconstru- you know, reconstruction trips scheduled. Uh, the one that is the most advanced and probably most palpable will be the week of Thanksgiving. 
Uh, we have ceased reconstruction efforts during uh, August and September because they're the height of the season, mm -hmm. and so they will re they will re uh, restart in October. The trip in October uh, is uh, we're still waiting for a larger sponsor. Uh, one of the ways in which we do this is that we have one organization take the lead and kind of like sponsor, you know, um, that is outside of the of the steering committee that you know that Reconstruyeku has. Um, so we haven't found a sponsor for October. So if your organization is interested in sponsoring, please give me, you know. Share, share the contact information for people that possible have a lead, possibly have a lead for a sponsor, and for people that want to help out too. So you can, you can reach me at Lisbeth, L-I-S-B-E-T-H dot M-R, as in Melendez Rivera at hrc.org that is probably the most direct way to uh to get to me um that that goes directly to my electronic monitor as my mother says my cell phone <laughs> um, you can you know i can give information on donations i can give information on participation we do know for sure that we will replicate the may trip uh, so next year, 2019, if you need time to accumulate your vacation, um, we will be in Puerto Rico between Idaho and Pride. And mm -hmm. so that will be from May 17th to the first Sunday in June. Um, during that time, we will be identifying both places that might have not gotten help yet, uh, that have been affected by new hurricanes or events in the island um, and that need just plain, you know, help in reconstruction. And we will be focusing on female-led, single-family, female-led households, queer households, queer families, and then queer people. And so that, you know, the, the queer families go first, then, you know, single household, uh, female-led single households, and then um, obviously, you know, we'll have variety of folks we know that once we move away from the east coast into the central areas of the island we will still find if you're familiar with Katrina or even Harvey um, you know and other major disasters it took years years for Florida to recover from Andrew and Hugo uh, it has taken New Orleans decade to, um, to recover from Katrina and it will take probably as long for Puerto Rico to recover. And we will need the same amount of help, the same amount of commitment, the same amount of justice as everybody else doing. Thank you so much, Lisbeth, for being on the show and sharing your journey in Puerto Rico and for helping out the most vulnerable in our community. Thank you for having me.